all the young people who are coming in. I will um, want to make a few more comments about application and the next step beyond application. And that's kind of what we're getting into this evening. Um, application is finding a way to make it practical, to make the interpretation practical in your experience, in your life, in your everyday life, in your situations, your decisions, etc. And so we can do that personally. That's the first part, of course. We need to practice what we preach, right? But you've got to preach it, too. And so that's the communication part, or what's sometimes called exposition, which is taking the application, the interpretation and the application, and communicating it to others. Okay? You can't keep it to yourself. You shouldn't keep it to yourself. You need to proclaim it to others. Paul told Timothy... Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So Paul was referring here, of course, to his apostolic authority. I think he defended that very strenuously in some of his epistles. But this is a good pattern for us as we uh, keep passing on that message of the gospel and of Jesus and what he means to us through his word, or what he brings to us through his word today. We can't keep it to ourselves. We communicate it to the group who then learns and continues to discern the proper application together as a group. And so vision is formed in that process, not just personal vision, but group vision. And this is the necessary result of application. It needs to become a group uh, effort. Application must be transferred into action and vision. Action is for the present. Vision is for the future. Effective communication of these things is absolutely essential. So there are sometimes applications that uh, you, you'll get on your chair when you're studying at your desk, and they, they strike you almost like a bolt of lightning, it may be. Almost instantaneously you realize, this is the meaning of this passage, this is how it relates to my life, and this is what I must do. And we'd like all applications to be that way, probably, but, the, but they aren't always that way. Sometimes especially if a person is discerning in their minds, if a person is being the leader that they ought to be, then they will be able to see that this applies to more than just my situation now, but it applies to maybe our group's situation and maybe in something that we're facing down the road that's not here yet or maybe something that we need to work on together and build and allow to grow in our group. So that's where vision comes in, and that's where the long-term applications are applied. Some applications are, more, are general, which is definitely more common, I would say, and some are more specific, which is probably less common, although both can come to us in various ways. And again, applications can vary from individual to individual, from group to group, 
and within a group. Paul told the Corinthians, and he tells us too today, that there are many members in the body, and there are gifts given to these members, and they are distrib- these gifts are distributed by the same spirit for the same ultimate purpose, which is unity. So there's difference in the gifts, and that's how it is with applications too, I think. Many times the applications may vary in our group, but not for the purpose of dividing us or setting us on separate paths from one another, but rather to bring us into unity or harmony, we might call it. We can work together with different applications, provided that the applications don't diverge too far from one another or too far from the original meaning. And there are some times, I think, there are mistakes that people make in application. And we need to be aware of these. Um, Mistakes can come from not doing the process right earlier, such as in observation, or in properly correlating the different parts of the Bible to get the proper interpretation out. And I have a couple examples here. This is A.J. Jacobs. You may have heard of this man. He, was, he, was, he is a Jew from New York City, a Jewish man, and he decided that for one year he's going to live according to the Bible as much as he possibly could. So he took all the instructions in the Bible he could find and just made a long list and said, I want to do all these things for one year and see how it goes. And so he, this was just a few years ago, by the way, and he had quite an experience, quite an interesting book. And, but the applications that he came up with were really kind of bizarre sometimes. He would throw stones at adulterers. He, would, uh, he wore his clothes very differently, just kind of like is in the picture there, which I think is from an actual photograph. And he let his hair grow long because the Bible says you should, and uh, at least your beard. And he lived around here for a while. I don't know, maybe some of you heard of him. He lived among the Amish and went to their church. Uh, I suspect that some of you would know people that met him if you haven't met him yourself. But it, it is a very interesting story. Uh, unfortunately, his applications brought to him, um, what I, I would say his, the observations that he made from the scripture were not properly correlated with the rest of scripture, and so he came up with bad applications. He entered this as a skeptical agnostic and, enter, and exited this year as a skeptical agnostic and as far as I know, it remains that to this day. And this, this book was a bestseller, so maybe that reveals some of his motive for doing this. Here's another one. Rachel Evans, who is a Christian uh, woman, she decided she would try to do a year of being as biblical a woman as she possibly could. And so it's, it's a similar experience, also done several years ago. And also a very interesting and well-written book, and it was also a bestseller partly because she is such a good writer. And um, so she would follow passages in Proverbs 31. You know, the woman exalts her husband. She would carry signs in the town intersection about you know, promoting her husband and things like that. Uh, again, bizarre applications. She covered her head for a year, which interestingly she found in 1 Corinthians 11. And she observed many parts of the Old Testament law that she wouldn't have had to observe due to bad correlation of what's in the New Testament and the Old and how Jesus fulfilled and became her law keeper so that she wouldn't have to do those things. 
Uh, she made a little corner up in the top of her house because in Proverbs it says that it's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a wide house with an angry and brawling woman. So whenever her and her husband had a fight, she would go live up there for a while, a day or two. Um, there, that's a bad observation. That's bad observation. What's she doing up there? It's the husband that's supposed to go up on the roof, all right? So, yeah, and this was a bestseller, so um, also a very interesting book. But that, that's, those are the kinds of things that can happen when you don't get your observation and your correlation correct. So avoid the mistakes. Um, and when you have got your application in place, learn to communicate it. And there are lots of people that we communicate with in promoting or proclaiming our, our applications of Scripture, our interpretations of Scripture. Some are believers and some are unbelievers. So we have encouragement in the church, and we have um, evangelism in the world. And I think that we can, um, we can set unbelievers and believers in different categories as to how we communicate interpretations of the Bible to them. In general, a believer will respond better to the, to the interpretations explained to them and applied from Scripture as, we're do, as we do in church when we do expository preaching or when we uh, preach from the Scripture. Um, unbelievers are going to not, they won't respond as well to that because they'll say, the Bible, well, I don't believe that. That's just written by a bunch of men uh, thousands of years ago and is corrupted over the centuries and whatever excuses they have, they don't really believe. So if you take the Bible to the unbeliever, it might not be entirely a bad idea, but it might not be the best way to capture their thought and to bring them into a, a listening relationship with you. They're going to respond better to other kinds of things that they're more used to. Just give me the facts. That's what they want. So you have to resort to what's sometimes called apologetics, which is defending the faith, not apologizing, but defending the faith to, to the unbeliever or to the world. So... Let's say you're talking about the existence of God. Well, you can talk about the beginnings of the universe, the fact that the, beginning, that the universe has a beginning, has to have a beginning, and therefore has to have a cause. Well, you know, then that might get their mind spinning. And you're not even bringing in the scripture into something like that. But we, didn't we see here earlier how that the unbelievers uh, see all the things from, about God as foolishness? It's foolishness to, to them. The carnal mind cannot receive the things of God. That was the verse we looked at earlier. So you have to get them another way. You have to evangelize, sometimes take different tactics. There are things that work better for one group of people in communicating your interpretations than to others. So think about those things. It's not like we need to put all this in categories and say, do this, don't do this. But there are best practices, just like in business. There are best practices, things that work better than other things sometimes. Here are some of the methods that we use in exposition or communicating God's truth after we have made the interpretation and the applications. Preaching is a central part of church life, and it also is done uh, to, the, to the world, not just to the Christian. Preaching is proclaiming, exhorting, it is more spiritual, and it, it aims at the heart of man, or the soul, we might say, the feelings and the emotions, trying to bend or mold the will in a certain way. And 
If I may go back to this inductive versus deductive thing. Remember those words from last night? Inductive starts with the little pieces and builds toward a conclusion. And deductive starts with the conclusion and then seeks to defend this conclusion with all the bits and pieces. Well, when we study the Bible, we want to use inductive reasoning because that allows the text to speak for itself. But when you communicate the Bible, you can do one way or the other. So in preaching, oftentimes... It works really well to use inductive uh, reasoning in, in, pre- in presentation. What you're doing is bringing in all the little pieces, and then the grand finale, the climax, is at the end of the sermon. That keeps everybody's attention, keeps them from sleeping, too. And if you start like a scientist and say, here's what I'm going to preach about today, and you lay out your whole premise at the beginning, and then you go about to defend that, then maybe people will fall off. Uh, out of the window onto the street like Eutychus did. Maybe that's what Paul was doing. I don't know. Uh, Paul did a lot of good preaching. I don't want to fault him. Then teaching, on the other hand, is more like training. It is preparatory. It tries to help people learn something or maybe learn a skill. And it's more intellectual aimed for the heart or for the head and for the hands of people. Of course, we need teachers. We use teachers. Uh, we, we do this all the time. And it is also more deductive. So you start with a premise and then defend it. In teaching, it tends to use more that approach. Per, in personal evangelism, uh, this is more like um, an encouraging type of thing where you're on an equal plane with someone else. This could be a believer or an unbeliever because, after all, believers struggle too, right? And we want to help and encourage one another and Uh, We're not like Calvinists, I hope, that think that we can never fall away, and so we never need encouragement to stay in the faith. But we do need to evangelize one another in the church, too. Help one another to continue to believe, to to love, and to follow. But evangelism generally is a term that we use to try to help people come to faith. And so personal evangelism, that term, tends to be used more uh, when we're talking about unbelievers. And I can understand that. It's relationship-based. It has a lot to do with living with, uh, demonstrating, and showing with a life rather than with uh, standing up in front of them like I'm doing here today. That's not really personal evangelism. Living examples are another way to uh, proclaim or to communicate an application. Uh, This is a witness type of evangelism that is with your life, and it shows consistency between your words and your actions. All of these are important in their own way. We shouldn't, we shouldn't skip any of them or write any of them off. We need all of these methods and possibly more. Um, so any questions or thoughts on any of that that you might have? And in all of these efforts... The thing that we want to be doing is getting our message from the Bible, okay? Using the methods that I explained earlier here, reading the text, observing what's there, uh, and getting an interpretation and application from it ourselves. Too many times what I, what I see and what I am tempted to do myself is I read some book, some guru that I like or something, and then I go communicating that message around to people. Have you ever felt like that or seen people do that? They just have the latest and greatest, some book that they read or something. But why can't we get it out of the Bible? It's too hard work, right? Well, let's, let's use the scripture as the basis, first of all, the basis 
for our communication in preaching and teaching, in personal evangelism, and in living. Okay? That doesn't mean books are bad, but it, they just shouldn't take primacy, I think. All right, next thing is vision, looking ahead. Build a vision, build your vision on God's word. Here again, the books oftentimes can come in and confuse people or take people down a certain track that may or may not be necessarily biblical. But build it on scripture. This building vision is very much a group effort and involves a lot of communication, oftentimes as a leader of a group. And it may not be me standing up here or one of your ministers standing up here. It may be you as a father in your home or a mother. It may be a teacher in the classroom. It may be you in the youth group uh, in some role where you can talk to more more than just one or two. And you're proclaiming something. And you're saying, "This this is really what we need for our youth group. This is really what we need for our family, for our community, for our church. So you have to explain a plan of action that you have derived from the application that came from the interpretation of Scripture that you have uh, observed. Now, building a vision involves fostering an interest in long-term applications of Scripture. Not only immediate, but long-term. In building a vision, you want to find ways to enact biblical applications for family, church, and community, and we see this with when we were looking at the book of Acts. Paul was so good at this. He had such a good vision. And whenever, wherever he went, he pulled out the scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament at that time. And he went straight to the synagogues and he explained these scriptures. He was doing, he was doing interpretation of the scriptures in these synagogues. And he said, this is what it means. We have sermons in the book of Acts that we can study and see how he did it. And, and then he would say, here's what it means. Here's what it means. And this is the long-term application of this. And then he put that into practice by traveling here, traveling another place, and going farther and farther. And he enacted the vision. He put it in the plan, into place almost, it seems like himself. But, of course, he had a lot of help and encouragement along the way. He had people that worked with him. But he had a, he had a very big dream. He dreamed large. And he had a world application for missions, like my last point here on this screen. Uh, it could be missions. It could be a lot of things that you can do, even humanitarian aid. Many of our uh, mission organizations that we have in this, that we work with, or others even that we don't work with, that have done great things in the past, these were led by people who had big dreams and read the scripture and said, This is what we need to do. This is what we need. And here's how we go about it. Here's the application for us, not just for me. Not just for my family, not just for my church, but for everybody. I want to get everybody involved in this. And we've got a whole bunch of people, and we're going to change the world. <laughs> so, of course, that takes big dreams to do that, but it also takes good leadership based on good, solid application of Scripture. So there's nothing wrong with dreaming big if you get the dream out of the application that came from the Bible. I think that's where we need to go with this. That's how we build vision in our church and community. And finally here, I'm going to talk a bit about using the sword of the Spirit. And for this, we turn to Ephesians 6. There's a, the end of Ephesians. 
we have the passage about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And Paul told the Ephesians that the weapon... Um, Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So it's often been noted, of course, that this is the only, the sword is the only offensive weapon in the armor. And so that's the one that's used against the enemy to destroy and to vanquish the enemy. And the others are used for more for defensive purposes. So that's the Bible, or that's the scriptures. And we see Jesus doing that in the wilderness when he used the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, against the devil. And Jesus, it's almost not fair, right? He was so good at it. He knew how to bring up these scriptures and use them against the devil in such an effective way that the devil couldn't uh, stand against it. He didn't have a reply, but he tried something else. But I think that with Jesus, we can do the same thing. We can, if, if we are diligent in our interpretation and application, we can also use this sword in this way, and we must learn to use it. Identify the real enemies. Uh, Paul wrote this letter, and somebody tell me from the last verse some details about, oh, he wrote this to the Christians at Ephesus, right? Where did he write it from, according to the end of the chapter? From Rome, and according to... Verse 20, what was his situation when he was writing this? He was in prison. He was confined. He was a captive of the Romans. All right? So he was writing possibly under house arrest or some kind of confinement when he wrote this. Now, didn't we just hear in the last session what happened in Ephesus? Does anybody remember? Riots, yeah. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. There was the cult of Diana there. And so, does anybody remember any other details? Which people did Paul confront in those riots that kind of helped bring peace to it? Who were these people? You remember? Okay. So there were people that were, um, that were creating the images and that saw their commerce threatened, Right. And they were the ones that were kind of inciting these riots. But Paul was peaceful with them. He didn't see them as the enemy, did he? He, he, he didn't take out any weapons and smite them and knock them down anyway. He didn't get any karate moves out on them. He just talked nice to them. And they weren't his enemies. So who were the real enemies? Well, Paul says, verse 12 of this very chapter that we're looking at here. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. He recognized who the real enemies were, and he put that into practice. We see that already in the book of Acts, which was written earlier. I'm sorry, the, the events in Ephesus were earlier, and here he was in Rome. The events in Ephesus were on his third journey, and this was on his, what was it, the fifth or the fourth, whenever, I don't know, probably the fourth trip when he went as a captive to Rome, possibly. When he wrote this, so it was a good while later, sometime later at least, and he was putting that into practice the whole time. He recognized who the real enemies were, and that determined his approach in dealing with people that stood in his path. So he, knew, he learned how to use the sword of the Spirit. That's what we need to do. 
When we confront difficulties and situations, learn how to use this sword. Just like any warrior, learn how to use the sword. Learn the best ways to use scripture against enemies. All right? You're not trying to out-argue someone because the person is not the enemy. Now, Paul did a lot of defense of the faith, and sometimes he got a little heated with people. And the one time he even apologized to the one guy in Jerusalem. He said, you know, I probably shouldn't have said that, right? And, but he recognized, seemed like he was pretty consistent with recognizing who his real enemies were, and that, that was not the people. So he learned how to use Scripture the right way in defending the faith rather than trying to attack the person. In, in, in logic and philosophy, this is called, these are called ad hominem attacks. When you start attacking the person, when you say, what's wrong with you anyway? Then you, you stray from the argument and you start attacking the person. Have you ever heard that? You're not even talking about the issue anymore. You're trying to discredit the person. Well, Paul didn't do that in his, because he recognized that the person was not the enemy. Neither should we. So learn how to use the scripture against the enemy, the real enemy. And some things to fight. Fight false teaching. <clears throat> Paul spent a lot of time defending the, the purity of the apostolic faith that had been given to them by Christ. And he recognized that there were people out there that were coming up with other applications of Scripture. And he didn't hesitate to go after them tooth and nail, not the people, but the real enemies. And so he talked sometimes very strongly, more than maybe most of us would. Maybe it was just his personality. But also I think it was the fact that he recognized what was at stake here. When he went after these enemies, spiritual enemies, when he was fighting false teaching, he recognized that there were people that had committed themselves to ideologies that were false. And so he attacked the ideas and the teachings. Fight spiritual apathy. Fight materialism. Fight biblical ignorance. Fight. You could make a long list here of things that we can fight. The person is always redeemable, but the ideas are what we need to battle against with the word of God. Learn how to use that sword to cut that stuff out if you can and persuade the person. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, he said in one place. So he, was, he saw the person as someone that was caught in the clutches of something, a spiritual power that needed to be pulled out of it. So, yeah, Paul took this to the nth degree in trying to figure out how to help people get away from bad applications of Scripture or from deception that others had foisted upon them. Find effective ways to fight as a group. Soldiers always fight better when they're together, when they're in groups. This is just a principle of warfare. When there's teamwork... And if you fight alone, now we might say, well, Jesus did in the wilderness. Maybe that was a little different experience. But I think God calls us to stand together, to stand together. And even when we are maybe alone with someone defending the faith, we're not really alone. There are others who can help us, who can join in prayer, who can, you know, we can come back to later and say, what about this situation? How, you know, where do I go next? We, we don't need to stand alone. We can fight as a group, and we can use applications from the Word of God as the most effective ways, if they're right applications. And finally, God's Word used rightly brings truth and love to God's people. I don't think that 
we're going to be dividing people with God's word if we use it correctly. And it seems like many times people have used, you know, people are this way. We, we are, we have, we're subject to failure. We're not infallible. And we have struggles sometimes with personalities, um, even different gifts in the church. And we don't quite understand each other. So in those situations, we need to communicate with one another to open the gates to love and to appreciation of one another's views. If we use God's word rightly, if we apply it rightly, remember that the Bible also says love your neighbors yourself. If we apply it rightly in these situations, I think we can bring truth and love to our churches and to those who would follow God. We don't need to be dividing one another as Christians. There, there is a division that happens between those who reject God and those who follow him. They go different directions. And there's a necessary division there that happens. Even though, like Paul did, all the time we're trying to help them, to persuade them, to get them out of the clutches of the spiritual powers. So any comments or thoughts on any of this that you might have? Any more insights? uh, Something I might have missed? So um, I want to thank you at this time as a church for your encouragement, your affirmations and support. Uh, Thank you for your hospitality and your gifts. We have tremendously enjoyed being here, and we'll look forward to even more coming back the next time. God bless you.